podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Talking Snooker with Phil Haig and Nick Metcalf. Once again, talking about the game we all love. Good day, Phil. How are you? Yeah, morning. Great to be here as always. I'm very good, thank you. Yeah, been enjoying the cricket. Um, following the uh, the women's action from up in Leeds over the weekend. Fortunately, couldn't watch it, but I was uh, keeping an eye on the live scores. So, yeah, all good. How are you? Very good, thank you. And we uh, also enjoying the feast of sport over the weekend. My goodness, that we had everything, didn't we? Uh, some football, cricket, Grand Prix, end of the Paralympics. I'm enjoying the Solheim Cup golf and uh, obviously tennis in New York. The only thing we're really missing is the, the snooker men's tour. But as you say, some women's action and a familiar winner. And we'll come to that uh, later on. But Phil, we must now straight away uh, introduce you to our special guest this week. We are delighted to be joined by one of the biggest names in the sport. This man has been a professional for more than a quarter of a century, but it's in the last decade that he's really hit the heights. He won his first ranking event 10 years ago in Australia, and that paved the way for a number of glorious triumphs, including the World Championship in 2015 and the Masters in 2020. He's also known as one of this sport's true disciples, living and breathing snooker and seemingly loving life on tour now as much as he ever has. We have Stuart Bingham with us. Stuart, it really is great to see you. How are you? Yeah, good morning. Yeah, good, thanks. Good, man. Well, it, it, it's great to have you on. Thanks so much for joining us. We could obviously, obviously ask you so much straight up about your uh, long career, your life in snooker, but let's, let's make it topical. How do you reflect on the opening weeks of your season? You reached stage two of the Championship League and then lost, obviously, in a very short match to Judd Trump at the British Open. So how would you assess those, those weeks and your performances? Um, yeah, it was um, obviously the, the getting through the first group. That was the main aim. Um, just obviously the second stage um, played pretty well and just obviously come up against uh, Ryan Day in the last match that obviously beat me and whoever won that game got through. So, uh, yeah, I was sort of, after the Worlds, I, I must have had five or six weeks off. But then when I started practising again, I sort of hit the ground running. I sort of made like, I was, I was making hundreds and maxes in practice and uh, I felt like I was going to have a, obviously a good, good strong start to the season and obviously getting through the first stage was good. Um, but obviously getting beat was a bit disappointed, but say sort of short formats, you can't sort of expect too much. And then obviously the British Open played pretty well against Rob, Donk, uh, Rob Milkins in the first match. And then, um, sort of started off okay against Judd and then Mr. Pink in the middle and uh, it all went sort of sadly wrong. Um, I got every chance um, in the in the sort of first part of the frames. I, I was sort of making 30 but falling down and and Judd played really well, sort of cleared up when he when he got the chances. So not um, obviously would love to have gone a lot further but um, it sort of saved the first start sort of first part of the season, it's very short format tournaments and uh, you've got to take it, sort of try not to be too disheartened about it. Yeah, I suppose if you're feeling good in those short short format events, you know, anything can happen really. So you don't, you don't want the results to sort of affect how well you're feeling, I guess, because 
you can do very little wrong to lose those matches. Yeah, yeah. You don't you say you don't have to do much wrong. Um, you say best of five in the British Open. Um, when I sort of first heard it, I thought it was a bit of a joke, but um, it sort of it worked well. Say so you, you had obviously a, a sort of another former winner, uh, Mark Williams winning it. So as much as people sort of moaned about it being short format and it's anyone, you still get a top class player that wins it. So uh, yeah, it's all good. Did you enjoy that? that format maybe or, or the tournament as general not your exit of course but the whole buzz of it uh, more than you thought it would because David Gilbert came on here and said he thought it was pretty ridiculous when he heard about it it sounds like your reaction might have been sort of similar yeah sort of it, it just felt like a bit of a sort of a glorified program they, they sort of built build it up on the TV and uh, I, I heard that actually ITV wanted it best of threes not best of fives but um, obviously People at World Snooker saying you couldn't have, you couldn't do that, especially with like a obviously a hundred grand prize for first like first prize. So um, yeah, obviously best of five. It's not everyone's desire, but at the end of the day, it's a tournament. I think literally two months prior to that, we didn't have a tournament on. So to put a tournament on and have that prize money, it's like well played at World Snooker. Mm. Yeah, and we were just talking about this before we started recording, but it's a funny time of year, isn't it? Big break over the summer and now another big break. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't think you're enjoying it too much. No, uh, people that know me would, would know I'd rather be playing. I'd rather be practising, but sort of having, I've got another, what, five, six weeks off before Northern Ireland. Um, I sort of twiddled my thumbs, don't know what to do. So this normally this time of year, the last, what, five, ten years, we've been off to Thailand or, or China. Um, I just said it was weird seeing the kids go to school. Um, <laughs> say normally I'm, I'm seeing it on FaceTime, but um, yeah, obviously people know me, I'd, I'd rather be playing. Um, it's, uh, I, yeah, it's just say, it's just a bit weird at the moment. Say we had, what, sort of 10, nine, 10 weeks off after the Worlds, then got sort of, got playing again, got practicing, and then uh, and now, now we're sort of seven weeks off. It's a bit obviously weird times. Obviously, we had Turkey being cancelled or postponed, sorry. Um, and it should obviously opened up the calendar. Mm. Sure. Can we see that? Is that your snooker room there? It looks like a table in the background. Yeah. 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 You can. This is an audio service, folks. So we're going to have to uh, put on our best descriptive hats here, Bill Haig. But what a, what a delightful snooker room that, that looks like. Heavens above. And there's a picture of the crucible behind, isn't there? Or, yeah. Which is, not just a picture; it's an entire wall. That is very impressive. Yeah. Well, that table—that is from the semi-final of 2015, and, and that table in the middle is that table. Oh wow! So uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I sort of I, I see one of the table fitters when I come off after winning, and uh, I did say to him, "What happens to the table?" And he said, "You get first picks." I said, "I'll have it." Amazing. So, yeah. So I practice on every day on the on the table one, won the tournament. Wow. Well, that's incredible. Uh, but what would have happened if you hadn't approached the table fitters? They would have come to you, would they, anyway? Or um, I'd have seen them at the awards, what, three or four days later. So right. I'd have made probably people that know me. I've got all, all the set of balls I've won with. I've got, obviously, all the trophies. I've got the referee gloves. Yeah. The tip I won the tournament with, the chalk. I'm a bit of a holder. So uh, hopefully, very, very soon, I've been saying it for God knows how long about putting trophy cabinets up, but hopefully it's uh, just around the corner. Mm. <laughs> and 
on a sort of serious note connected with that, I was personally quite surprised by how few snooker players had tables in their actual homes during the lockdown. So many were struggling. Some could go to clubs after a couple of months, but you obviously could always play. And that must be something that you're very pleased about, I imagine. Yeah, like you say, people that know me, how much I love the game. And I've always wanted that table in the house or in the garden. And um, yeah, obviously I was fortunate enough to find a house with the snooker room already built. So uh, that's obviously what got me to buy the house. But um, yeah, I think I think I heard eight or nine people out at the, at the tour who've got tables in their, in their houses. So um, yeah, it was obviously fortunate. Not that I practice. I was obviously enjoying the weather in the garden and, and enjoying a few drinks and being on TikTok and, and stuff like that. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure everyone's seen, but... Um, yeah, just sort of had a bit of time off and uh, it, it was good, obviously, to get back. Yeah, your TikTok appearances quickly became legendary. Was that just born out of lockdown and just something to do? Yeah, I, I was sort of signed up something over in China and, and they sort of said, you've got to get on TikTok. And it, I could obviously started to see a few adverts for it. And then uh, my wife sort of, what's, what's, what's all this? And then she started seeing some of the videos like, oh, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. And then... <laughs> Sort of in the daytime, we was drinking some wine and, and then sort of got on the rum at night and then the TikTok started to happen. So <laughs> I, I, I'd, I'd like to say I don't remember a lot of it, but I actually do. <laughs> it, it was all good fun. It weren't good fun getting dressed up in my wife's uh, outfit, but uh, it, was all, it was all good crack at the time. Yeah, that was great. Um, you sort of mentioned that you're obviously like, you're famous for the love of the game. Um and playing and everything, that's very much sort of a, a Stuart Bingham trope, isn't it? Um, but I wondered, is it is it as much as people talk about? I mean, everyone sort of talks about as if you're sort of bounding out of bed, can't get wait to get on the snooker table. You're like first to arrive at the arena for every event with a massive smile on your face. Is, is it as much as that? Um, very close to, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I still, the, the game fascinates me, sort of even like just practising, um, what say I've been playing what 30 odd years and no no shots ever the same you sort of you get people go to work and they're doing the same thing nine to five obviously we, we pop a million blacks off the spot but it's always something different you've got a different position uh, obviously you're feeling different and, and stuff like that but yeah it's just obviously been sort of blessed having obviously found something I'm good at uh, I've always loved sport so even like Obviously, I'm playing golf tomorrow. Um, mm. I'll, I'll be there sort of, I think, trying to tee off at like half 10, 11. I'll be there at nine o'clock on the range and just sort of enjoying the day sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, anything I've always done, I've always sort of enjoyed and, and played, sort of done all right in sort of front of a crowd. I remember playing squash and my mum and dad used to say that I'd play better in front of a crowd. So, and that's obviously the passion, the love and, and the adrenaline you get out of it all. And do, do you think that that gives you a benefit over other players who, I mean, everyone who plays has lo loves the game or has at least loved the game in the past. But um, I think a lot of super players struggle to keep a positive mindset just because it is so frustrating and so hard. Do you think your sort of obvious love for it is a, is a bonus for you? Um, most probably. I've sort of, I've heard a few people lately of sort of scan about China not enjoying traveling where 
I've sort of I always go out there three or four days before a tournament, get used to the time zone, and that's maybe probably why I do all right out there. I sort of um, you've got to yeah you've got to enjoy it or got to enjoy the culture. Some people go there and obviously take their own food where I, I sort of eat whatever sort of <laughs> whatever they put in front of me sort of thing. So some of it's good, some ain't that, that not so good. <laughs> but yeah, just sort of, you you sort of like you say in a normal job, how often would you sort of get the chance to go to Australia or China or India or, or wherever sort of doing what mm. you do? Uh, and it makes it extra special doing something you love. I mean, it, it seems like you've just been blessed with a very sunny disposition in life, Stuart, because, yes, you are fortunate to do something you love, but I know a few snooker players, and they'll be like, I'm not quite up for this today, just don't feel it. Do you not have those days? Yeah, well, I think we all do. I think um, sort of days of playing, sometimes you say it's sport. Some days it's there, some days it ain't. And uh, if you have a bad night's sleep or row with a missus or, or, or whatever, it, it, can, uh, it can affect your game. And uh, say, like, I'm pretty well, I've got a good sort of laid back outlook on things that are so, they're sort of few and far between, luckily. Mm. Well, Stuart, we've got so much to ask you, of course, about your, your career. But one thing that I know I've always been fascinated by, and I know that plenty of our listeners will be as well, is almost what, what you could call a career of two halves, really. You had uh, a, a very decent career in many ways for the first 15, 16 years. And then in the last 10 years, you've obviously shone, hit the heights and reached the very top of the game. Now, I think we've had so much correspondence, I'm going to sort of reflect it during rather than have it all at the end. And this, this is a, a good way of asking it from Snooker Loopy here on Twitter. It says, hi, chaps. I'm a huge Stuart Bingham fan, so I can't wait for this pod. Please, can you ask Stuart what clicked with him to take him from not doing an awful lot in the game to becoming a consistent winner 15 years into his career? Thanks a lot. And yes, I've heard you talk about it before. It's often um, painted a bit as the Barry Hearn era, more chances to play. But is it more than that? Was it about becoming more settled in your life as you got older? Is it a number of things? We'd love to know. Yeah, I think it was like a certain number of facts. Sort of, um, it was. I say, like obviously, I, I won a few tournaments. I, I won the um, uh, the Masters qualifier, sort of back to back, in sort of like two thousand five, six, round about that sort of year. Obviously, I've always won pro and like Pontins and uh, press that and, and places like that, but. Uh, I think what it was when there was sort of six tournaments before Barry Owen got in, I'd always build up to a, a, a tournament and a qualifying and make maybe put it too much on a pedestal. Want to try really too hard for it, and I'd always I remember coming back from a qualifying, maybe we win a match or two, coming away obviously disappointed. But the following week there was a program in Germany or wherever, and where I've just had that match sharpness, I've gone to Germany and, and won the program. And it sort of, it was a very sort of familiar sort of situation with me. Like I say, win primes and tournaments in Prestat and places like that. But then when Barry Owen come in and, and went, we went from six tournaments to what, 25 overnight, it just sort of, it sort of played into my hands really. Because it, it, if you was disappointed one week, it didn't matter because you had another tournament the following week or, or a week after. So my game started to get, 
stronger and stronger as obviously the more tournaments we played in. And uh, obviously at the time I got with my obviously wife at the time, we had, we had a kid in, in 2011, literally four weeks to the day after winning Australia. So yeah, everything, everything sort of clicked together uh, at that time. And uh, I think that was obviously a big factor. And like I say, we're like, there's so many players on tour that, that are good enough to win tournaments. But until you get that hands on that trophy, uh, it, it always seems to struggle. But some, you see some people, like Dave Gilbert's just won the champ, uh, Championship League. You could see him winning two or three this year because now he knows he can win a tournament. And, and, and that's, that's a weird thing. It, 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 sort of until you get your hands on that trophy, you never know. Uh, that door, I always say that door never opens. But as soon as that door opens... Uh, like myself, I started obviously winning a bit more regular. Is there anything, I mean, that, that first half of your career is almost sort of brushed over quite a lot because you became so successful afterwards, but were there any highlights you remember of that for the first few years? I was having a look through, obviously the World Amateur Championship was amazing. And then I had a look at the, the 99 Welsh Open, which seemed to be the first one you sort of did really well in, uh, beat Higgins. And that, did that sort of come out of nowhere, that one? Yeah, yeah, I'd say, like, obviously, um, I won the English Amateur uh, and the World Amateur in 96. I was runner-up in 97 to Marco Fu, the World Amateur. And, and then, obviously, that gave me the self-belief to sort of know I can win stuff and, and compete. But, obviously, it's a different story on the pro game. And uh, my first tournament I ever qualified for, as you say, 99 Welsh Open, I played Tony Drago in the first round, beating 5-0. Um, remember it sort of clearly. Uh, I played Gerald Green, beating five four on a respot to play John Higgins, beat John five four, and then uh, that was obviously my first sort of step in, into the sort of limelight. And then Joe Swell beat me five one. I think I made hundred first frame. It was on the like one table setup, and uh, I made hundred, and then he beat me five one. It's obviously just too much for me at the time. Mm. Um, but yeah, that was sort of the belief, like, right, my first tournament I qualified for, I got to the quarters. So I knew that it was there, the game was there. Um, but it was just, say, it was just hard. And then, was it later that year, I got to the, obviously, the, the World Championship. So it was all started to started to happen. Hmm. And uh, yeah, it's a very fair question from Phil, actually, because it is... Maybe it's natural, I don't know. It does feel like it's brushed aside a bit. And would you rather people didn't dismiss those those first 15, 16 years like that? Because it's almost like, well, they were very important as well. I got my grounding. I learned the trade. I still got some big results. They were important too. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, obviously, the results are all few and far between. But yeah, definitely put, uh, put me on the map. And like you say, it sort of got me to know the game you get some people that sort of climb the ranks pretty quick and then slowly sort of drop down but for me it was obviously a, a harder ladder to climb and um obviously it, it took me 15 years but um obviously it got there in the end so sort of I, i'm not that fussed if people forget them or not it, it's made me to what i am today like you say you get some people get up there quick and and maybe think they're it uh, and, and stuff like that, where it sort of maybe kept me grounded, that it sort of got me, got me through slowly. Mm. And um, and Australia in 2011 was a huge moment for you, of course. And we remember how how much of a 
the massive personal moment that was for you. Um, those Mark Allen comments. Now, I know we return to them uh, time and time again. We have had people here uh, contact us. Donal on Twitter uh, asks, how did you feel about Mark Allen effectively calling you a, a bottler at the time? Yeah, no, I, I, sort of, I had to sort of stop and think of sort of where that come from. Um, but we played in the UK, I may probably a couple of years before, and um, he ended up beating me 9-7 or 9-8 in the quarterfinals. And um, and obviously you're disappointed to losing. I remember shaking his hand, not wishing him well done or, or good luck or whatever. And I think he took that to heart. And then sort of like you say, I remember seeing him at the, at the hotel bar and I sort of like went, well done, sort of like, well done, good luck and all that. But when I got back to the room, I sort of read the comments and he sort of slated me a bit in, in the sort of interview after. And I just thought, that's weird, but then it was it was after the match. Obviously, I, I didn't wish him well done, but then after, obviously. So, I don't know. And then, obviously, it must have been the next time we played. It was the, um, obviously, the Australia quarterfinals. And as soon as he sort of said that, it, it weren't... like I, I'm, I'm sort of, I think I fell down at the quarterfinals about six or seven times before that. So, I've never got past the quarters. So, it, it sort of turned the match into a, just a one-on-one -on -one match. It weren't a court finals mm. for what I was concerned. So uh, it helped me in a way. And I, I sort of, obviously we, we joke about it now, but right. I sort of thank him for it because that's obviously the turning of my career. <laughs> it sounds like you're, you're mates now though, you're friends. Yeah. My next question, but it sounds like you're good, you're good friends now. Yeah, like we, we, we done, um, we done a sort of an exhibition, uh, what was it, the Legends in, in Ireland. And we was on the bus and everyone's going back. And uh, it was obviously talking to Mark, sort of, I think Ireland beat England in, a, say, like a, a Legends thing. And uh, he, he said if he was going to get to a respot, he was going to cut it in. And he, he when he got to a respot, he actually played safe. And I said, what did you do, bottle it? And everyone on the on the sort of coach just laughed their heads off. <laughs> and he went, yeah, good point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> I was going to ask um, from the question from Snooker Loopy. He said he's a big Stuart Bingham fan. And I, I find that a lot. Speak, speak to people who follow Snooker sort of casually or more uh, or more regularly. Um, you've got an awful lot of fans. A lot of people uh, follow your progress and wishing you well all the time. Um, when you were going through that first stage of your career, I mean, I'm sure you always had supporters. But it, would it, did it seem like a long way off that you had sort of an army of fans around? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, obviously... Yeah, my family and friends, sort of, uh, my mum, I think, is my biggest fan. But uh, sort of, yeah, I, I just think it, it sort of people watch her. And they, obviously, I think my sort of my first big result beating Hendry in, in 2000. And I suppose that opened up the eyes to a few sort of fans. And uh, maybe we kept in sort of contact or, or watched down my progress sort of thing. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's obviously great. It's all. I was with a few people yesterday and people were like, don't you get the ump with it? And I'm like, how can you get the ump? Like, people recognise the saying you, you're good at or, or you do well. And and it's like, you, you sort of stop and talk to them and like, don't you ever get fed up with that? No, it's 10, 15 seconds out of your life. Mm -hmm. Sort of, you're making someone's day. It's sort of, I say, I think like, obviously, thanks to my mum and dad, obviously, it keep me grounded, but it's, I'm only good at snooker. I'm not like a 
superhuman being or, or whatever like that. It's sort of, and it's, I think it's good that, say, you get appreciated for what you do. And it sounds like you, feel, you do feel the love from, from the fans then. Yeah, definitely. You sort of uh, put on a show. Obviously, it don't happen all the time, but um, it's good when it happens. Yeah. I mean, Stuart, it strikes me that obviously people love watching you play and uh, you're a very popular player because, you know, you've had great success, but also you are very interactive with your fans. I mean, you're not the only one, but, you know, you have your own podcast, don't you, which goes out um, and we enjoy listening to that. And you're often putting messages on social media about thanks for the support, perhaps more than most do, to be honest. And you, you kind of involve your fans is, is that deliberate or just kind of the person you are naturally um to be fair i've maybe probably gone a bit quiet lately um i, I used to be I, I was maybe probably one of the first i remember when the iphone first come out and i, I remember joe perry used to take the mick at me saying <laughs> oh you got an app for that you got an app for that like just taking the piss <laughs> and then uh, now it's all like Stu how do you do this how do you do that it's sort of like asking for help but um, yeah with the social media all sort of booming it, it's good to interact you, you do get some trolls trollers and uh, it, some of it is nasty but um, that's like say of late I've maybe probably sort of stepped back it's, it seems like every all the other players now are, are sort of interacting with people and I sort of just sort of pick and choose now when when I sort of do it. I used to do like after every match and every tournament, and uh, I see other people do it now. So I sort of uh, I've sort of taken a step back, and uh, sort of Twitter maybe we only go on a few few days here and there. And uh, if I see that people have obviously try to message me or whatever, I, I do try and get back to them. But um, it might take a day or two longer than it normally does. So I guess we've got to move on to the big one, the World Championship. Uh, you, you'd had a you'd had a really good season that year, but um, you hadn't won a load of matches at the Crucible before. Going there that year, did you feel different? Did you feel like something was coming? Um, yeah, I'd say I, I, I won, I think, four tournaments or three tournaments going to that. And uh, I come off of a semi-final of uh, China, uh, and a semi-final of the tournament before that, I can't remember what that was. But um, yeah, I just thought that my game was there that year. Um, and But obviously going to the Crucible, we just don't know. I remember having Robbie Williams in the first match and, and Robbie's a great player and uh, I knew it would be a tough game. And sort of got through that and then my game sort of started to click and uh, I, just, I just knew my game was there. And um, obviously I played Graham Dot in the second round and sort of to beat Graham the way I did, was it 13-5, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I just knew that I, I, I had a shout. Um, but obviously the, the, the next match after that was the hardest was obviously Ronnie because two or three previous uh, years before, he beat me 13-4. So uh, obviously that was the furthest I got to. So uh, obviously practiced with Ronnie a lot and I've sort of grown up watching him and uh, it was it was a big match. I think one of the tournaments before, not not so long before the actual tournament, he beat me 6-0 in one of them. Oh. So um, I knew I was in for obviously a tough game, but I, I knew my game was there. So I, I felt like I had every chance. Yeah. And you seemed like you were in a good place mentally as well. And you used an app, didn't you, uh, throughout? I mean, Joe, Joe Perry talking about apps there. You, you were into apps pretty early, Stuart. And it, 
and, <laughs> and you used a, 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 a particular brain training app, didn't you, in that season before? Um, tell us about that, and tell us, do you still use something like that now? Yeah, I, I'm not. I don't use it as frequent as as maybe probably I should. But uh, yeah, every now and then I'll get back into it. But you sort of do a course of it for six months. It's called With Zing or Zing Performance. And um, yeah, I, I remember meeting up with a guy, um, sort of November, sort of December time in 2014. And uh, I've tried everything, hypnotherapy, sports psychology to try and help me. And uh, I met with this guy, he was um, saying all scientific things that it, how it works and he said oh when's the world championship and I said oh it's like four months away four or five months away and he went if you get on it now he said you could become world champion and like I'd give anything a go to obviously become world champion and you never really think it happens but uh yeah it's sort of um it, a few people you was saying at the time like you're doing something different you seem really focused really sort of on the ball and and uh, yeah, obviously, I might probably put it down to obviously that. Mm. And I, I don't know if you remember this, but I came to see you um, early in the following year. I think it was at Crondon Park during the Championship League. And you very kindly sat down with me at length there for an interview I was doing with the World Championship Programme. And often when you're a journalist and you're writing a feature like that, you're thinking, what can I lead this with? What can I hang this feature on? But with you, it became pretty clear quite quickly. And, let me try and take you back to around about an hour before that last session of that World Championship final against Sean Murphy. You were favourite at that stage. You were leading. And I think it's fair to say that the enormity of the moment kind of suddenly hit you, didn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was leading 14-11. Um, just had, obviously, a bite to eat. I got in a shower. And just as I was, just as I was turning the shower off, uh, my wife was in in the sink brushing her teeth and uh, I got out of the shower and I went, I'm done. She went, what do you mean? I said, I'm done. I said, I'm four frames away for something I've always sort of dreamed of doing. And uh, I suppose when I was behind in, in the match, I didn't have them feelings because you're obviously always behind. But being just four frames away, sort of touching distance, um, it, it like, yeah, the pressure really hit hard. Uh, and I remember sort of, I didn't really settle in in that last session till it sort of went 15-0. Uh, 15-12, uh, I, I felt like I had someone else's arm on me, someone else's cue. It just, everything just felt so much pressure. And uh, and so until that, it got to 15-0 and, and sort of I got to the end of the frame. And I think when I went to the toilet after about 60 minutes of that frame. Yeah. And the crowd laughed, and I think that sort of relaxed me. And then, uh, and then obviously the last couple of frames that I made big breaks with. But uh, yeah, it was obviously a big moment. How important was your wife in persuading you to go out? I mean, I guess you would have obviously probably gone out there yourself anyway, but she must have given you that kind of push that this was such a massive moment for you and gave you the pep talk you needed, I guess. No. <laughs> she, actually, she actually said why have you said that she went oh, I need a drink now I need to calm down <laughs> I got her all nervous okay. <laughs> yeah no obviously, I obviously spoke to my manager uh, and he, he obviously saying like calm down so uh, but yeah it's hey, and, and even even all the talking you could have done I, I remember walking out there 
and as I say, I just just didn't settle until fifteen on. Is that I take it that's a unique feeling? Have you had that before or after anything like that? No, nothing. Um, Close May probably in twenty twenty. Um, obviously the Masters. Uh, I remember being five three up on Ali, uh, and I felt like I had someone else's arm on me to go seven five down. Even though Ali played well, I, I missed a few few pots and uh, I just couldn't couldn't sort of do anything right. And uh, I remember going at the break uh, seven five, thinking that's it, I'm done. I'm thinking of a whip like sort of loser speech. Um, but obviously our snooker is now sport is something clicked and I might probably pay the best snooker of the tournament for me in, in them last sort of few frames. I think I've heard Ali say a couple of times he, he doesn't know how he didn't win that game. But I think it shows what, I mean, those Mark Allen comments earlier in your career, it's completely the opposite. You've got as much bottle as anyone to like dig out those results when things aren't going that well. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is. It's sort of like when I need to, a calmness comes over me. And I, I sort of play a sort of a carefree attitude that if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And um, that's, it's. I remember, obviously, Steve Steve Davis used to say, you've got to play like it means nothing, but it means the world. And, and that's maybe probably the sort of mindset I suppose you're getting or, or what I seem to get in when it, when it matters. And that Masters victory was, I mean, the opposite of what we were saying about your World Championship season as well. Really came out of nowhere. Um, what were your sort of expectations going into that tournament? Um, I suppose like um, the same as, say, like the Worlds. It was sort of not really doing that well there. I've, I've made probably only won one or two games at, at, at the Masters itself. Um, I remember being 5-1 up on Selby, losing 6-5. Uh, I remember being sort of 4-1 up, losing 6-4s and, and things like that. But I remember I played Mark Williams in the first match, 2-1 down and 1-6-2. And then it just sort of just seemed to just sort of seemed to pan out. I, was, I remember being 4-1 down to Kyron, winning 6-4. Um, so, yeah, it just, it just seemed to click at the right time. I think I know the answer to this, um, Stuart, knowing of you uh, as we do and, and seeing the way you react to things. But did, did those wins, particularly the World in 15, did, did that change your life? Um, I'd, I'd be lying saying it didn't. But, yeah, definitely. It, it sort of made probably change my life in getting recognised more. The BBC's sort of people don't realise how big the BBC is. Mm. Um, just sort of say I, I could walk anywhere, go to Tesco's, and you get people looking at you, and, and some come up to them and sort of say, "Oh, watch out, well done, unlucky, or whatever." <laughs> but yeah, I suppose it's changing sort of that way. Um, obviously, I've, I've had some nice cars. Obviously, I'm in a nice house now. So yeah, I suppose definitely it's changed my life. Mm. But it, I, I suppose. I feel like I'm the same person. I sort of give time to whoever. It sort of don't matter. Where did winner winner chicken dinner come from? Was that instinctive? <laughs> um, I remember watching a film called I think it was called Twenty One. It was about like a poker, um, <laughs> and um, was it poker or or, or uh, it must have been obviously like a pontoon sort of thing, and uh, and they and it. 
come out there, win a winner chicken dinner. And uh, yeah, I don't know where that popped into my head from, but uh, yeah, I, I remember sort of saying it and, and a few other players, Michael Holt used to say, don't use that. That's so embarrassing. <laughs> it, it, sort of, it sort of like stuck really. So uh, it's sort of like a nice little, nice little uh, slogan for me. <laughs> Along the similar lines, we, we had a couple of emails in, and I was going to ask this as well, the nickname Ball Run. Um, a couple of li- listener questions asked if you you found that a bit of an annoying nickname, but I think when I've heard you talk about it before, you sort of embrace it. Um, and do you sort of feel that you are lucky? And where, and who gave you that nickname? Um, my, I remember when I sort of just left school, I was playing at Badger Centre Club, and, and the best player in the club at the time, Robert John, um, he, he ended up giving it to me. I remember I used to, well, used to play really open and maybe probably a bit like Judd used to go for everything. And if you, I always think if you if you go for it, you've got a chance of getting away with it. If you don't <laughs> go for it, then you're going to stick it up or whatever. And uh, and obviously, I used to be obviously really lucky, and that's obviously where it's all come from. And it and it sort of stuck really when I sort of started early on in the programs. And I remember having it on my case. And it, and it just obviously stuck with the with the pros, and uh, you sort of it does make you laugh. You see some players, uh, you see some commentators. There we go. There's ball run, but it's like shot previous. Like the other lads just maybe had the same shot because his nickname ain't ball run. They don't say nothing, so it is a bit annoying that way. But um, yeah, it, it's it's stuck, and it is what it is. Don't know what else I'd have been called the Basin Bomber or, or whatever. I don't know. Well. Well, on that subject, we actually have Matt Tarrant in Derby on email. Says, you've achieved so much in the game through a combination of talent and hard luck, many, many hours of practice and lots of failures. So how frustrating and irritating is it to have others put this down to luck with your nickname? Every time you split a pack and there's nothing on, you must be tempted to say out loud, ball run, flipping ball run. I don't think so. (laughs) I would be. How do you stop yourself? And then it says, is it me thinking that if you complain then you'll be even more associated with it. I think we just start a new nickname. Here's some suggestions. Brilliant Bingham, the Basildon Break Builder, Essex Excitement, or Stuart Ball Fun Bingham. (laughs) (laughs) Basildon Break Builder's not bad. Yeah. I remember when I used to play squash, that I was the Basildon Bomber. Um, I like that, actually, yeah. It was, uh, uh, yeah... I think ball runs there will stay, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, it's sort of um, brilliant Bingham. Sounds really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just what it's just one of those things you've got to have a, a nickname and uh, it is what it is, I suppose. I mean, a bit more on that Masters win. I mean, it, it, it was a wonderful night for you. It, it seemed to be, for me watching you that night, that... Yeah, nothing will ever compare to the Crucible. That was your finest hour. Nothing will ever quite match that moment of winning that that particular title. But it also seemed like it maybe wasn't all that far behind. It was like you achieved the big one in 15, and now you kind of really cemented that with another massive title. I mean, let's not underplay it. You were over the moon with that with that triumph, weren't you? Yeah, I suppose where it come a bit out of the blue, um, I'm obviously got pictures and, and, and things like that and it, it don't seem like I'm smiling that much but it, I was so I think emotionally gone 
from being seven five down and and I'm sort of more or less give up and then and then, and then sort of to come back and win I think it just really took it right out of me um but uh, yeah I, without a doubt looking back I think it, it like people say it's when you sort of retire and you look back what you've done when you're still competing you just get on with the next tournament but when you sort of look back over a career and, and you can see what you've won and, and what you've done um, it'll, it'll mean so much mm. um, and we and I, I'd also like to sort of follow that up by talking about the UK championship which of course you now need to win to get one of those nice little triple crowns on your waistcoat and we've had a question here from Luigi DeFalco on Twitter it's a good one I think please ask Stuart if he would prefer to win the world championship again to become a double world champion or the UK to complete the triple crown, which would mean more to you? Uh, both. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to win both. No, um, definitely without a doubt, winning the world championship again would, would, would be ahead of the UK. Um, but uh, all my, all my sort of uh, practice and, I'm trying to build it up around the UK. I, I remember getting to a couple of semi-finals uh, of the UK, and I thought I was obviously going to win that before. And I had any chance of winning that before the Masters, uh, as I said, because I, I sort of hardly won a game there. But um, yeah, that sort of growing up watching all the best players in the world win a triple crown, it, it, that, that had sort of sucked, that had sort of put right as a, a crown on my career. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as you say, but uh, no, without a doubt, it, it'd have to be a second World Championship before before the UK. And at the World Championship, obviously that amazing run this year did, I mean, it doesn't come out of nowhere because you've won it before and you're obviously a superb player, but having to go through the qualifiers, um, not too many people were tipping you, but did it start to feel like it was going to be a second one? Yeah, without a doubt. Um, I sort of obviously got through a, a decider against Dean, a decider against um, McGill. McGill. Um, so yeah, I, I thought it was all it was going to happen. Obviously, done done a good match against Jamie Jones. Um, so yeah, I, I thought um, got get get to the sort of one table set up. Obviously, I was playing Mark, but I felt like my game was was there and my scoring was good. Uh, and I, it, it, that's maybe probably the hardest thing. I, I felt like I had played Mark in the mm. semi final. And come away losing, it's it's sort of hard to take, really. Uh, it just come down to sort of the last couple of frames. Um, but yeah, it's definitely gave me that sort of self belief that I can win it. As I said before, that sort of going to the qualifying, I'm, I'm thinking, is this my sort of slidey slope, sort of mm. to retiring, really? Um, but to sort of play like I did in the qualifiers, beat Luca in the last qualifying round, play really well. And definitely without a without a shot, uh, without that start again, <laughs> <laughs> without a sh like doubt that it gave me the confidence to sort of go into the crucible, um, knowing I was playing well. So um, yeah, it was it was it was a good tournament, and uh, sort of yeah, proud of it. Mm -hmm. I have to ask you about um, that semi final, highly dramatic one wonderful for us to watch maybe not a time for you to play in but uh, it was a it was great theater um you obviously narrowly lost um and 
then you did make some comments straight away on on television after that and we we have an, a question about it here adam in york on email hello stuart big fan here loved your run in the last world championship but noticed the press conference or actually the, the um, television interview wasn't it immediately after the match against selby and felt you were sort of railroaded into saying you thought there was quotes unquote gamesmanship on selby's part did you think this also, or were those your genuine sentiments after the match? And do you think the media should perhaps be more responsible when interviewing sports people immediately after such huge matches, given the emotions which are so obviously raw? What would your reaction be? Yeah, no, obviously the media are there to do a job. They they want they want sort of stories. So they're gonna ask you questions that are gonna roll you up. Um, it's obviously I've I've spoke to Mark since and obviously apologised and uh, uh, just obviously, it, yeah, it, it's a bad time. Say, I, I'm, if I lose a, a close match, I sort of can't say well done. I can't speak to anyone uh, for like, give me sort of half hour, an hour, and then I've calmed down because it's then it's gone. But straight after, it's it's raw. And um, I sort of felt at the end of that match, he, he's obviously celebrated before putting match ball uh, and, and the sort of antics he'd come out with when he, he flew to red, sort of played up a little bit. And I just thought it was a bit wrong. Uh, but each their own, sort of like I say, we've spoke it out. We've, we've, we've had a sort of laugh about it now. But um, yeah, the sort of obviously Rob Walker, he's, he's got a job to do. And maybe probably sort of like I say, that first bit of the interview, I sort of said like, yeah, well done to Mark. He played really well. Sort of hope he, hope he wins it sort of thing and uh, and then they start asking you the questions and you say at, at that moment in time I, I was sort of had steam coming at me sort of thing and uh, they obviously knew the right buttons to press and I think you said since that you, you sort of take back the gamesmanship um, comments but uh, that, like you said you, you seemed like the better player through a lot of that match um, but what is what is that feeling like when you're sort of getting selbied, some people say, when it's just like sucking the life out of the game and it, it must be a uniquely horrible feeling? Yeah, it is tough, but but you know, you sort of know what you're gonna get with Mark. If if you sort of win a couple of frames quick, you know the, the sort of third or fourth frame's gonna take an hour long. Um he, he does that and, and he's good at doing that. Uh he, and that's obviously why he's four time world champion now. He um, <clears throat> he's up there with, with the greats, and uh, it's not obviously easy on the eye for everyone. But for the game itself, he, he knows how to play the game. He knows how to win, and that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I mean, he he carried on in that last frame of the first day, didn't he? When needing a lot of snookers. I mean, <laughs> that now that must have been uh, difficult. We know how mentally taxing this game is. Uh, you must have been thinking, I want to get to bed, Mark. Come on. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a point where I was like, what's happening here? But the way the balls were, that it was actually quite good to get snookers. So I knew I had to sort of keep my concentration and uh, and, and just keep my focus because, like, what, as good he is, he could easily get three or four snookers against you. And um, there was sort of chances of free balls and things like that. So I just had to sort of keep my focus and, and, and play the frame out. But uh, like I just say, like for a lot of people, it, it was like, it felt it was a bit pathetic. But um, obviously for me playing, I, I didn't think that. I was just like 
get the job done. And it sounds like you you have taken all the positives out of that super run. And I remember it was the, the decider against Ding. And you made a superb clearance. Um, and I think there was a similar situation against McGill. Um, but yeah, I mean, it showed again the unbelievable bottle and just what he can bring out those clearances. That seems to have become a bit of a trademark of yours. Yeah, it, it sort of started off this season as well. I, I'm, I'm sort of made a good couple of clearances in, in the early stages of the first round uh, or first stage of the Championship League. And uh, yeah, it's sort of, I suppose watching John Higgins doing it time in, time out, <laughs> it, it sort of. <laughs> It, it sort of it helps, but um, yeah, I, I'm say I remember that clearance against Ding. Uh, he got in first. He was fifty odd, sixty odd up, and uh, or, or forty odd up or whatever. I remember. I think the last second from last red, I potted it and took the other red off the cushion. And it was like I had to go for it. I didn't fancy it, but I had to go for it. And uh, luckily, it went in, and I think it left me a sort of a, a sort of a smelly pink into the yellow pocket and. Um, Potted that and yeah, say the rest is history in that match. And then with McGill, he, he was unlucky. He potted, I think, the yellow or the green, went into the reds, didn't finish out on nothing. Mm. And um, uh, and then yeah, um, I think I made I finished the match off with 100. It's interesting you mentioned John Higgins there because this was a question from a listener as well. Um, Paddy on Twitter said, Can you ask it, Stuart, if he has any professional rivalry with anyone? Doesn't mean dislikes anyone, but. Um, a professional rivalry, and Paddy mentioned you seem to come up against John Higgins a lot, and you all seem to have close matches. Yeah, obviously not not a fan of John because he beat me maybe probably the last what seven or eight times we've played. <laughs> but yeah, he's he's obviously one of the toughest players out there. He, he sort of he don't give you an inch, um, and and even when he ain't playing great, he, he somehow seems to get results. So yeah, I think that's the only sort of player I can think of who I've lost. The last maybe five or six games we've played. So, um, but yeah, no, mainly sort of 90, 95% of the players on tour get on. So, mm, brilliant. Phil Haig, this is historic. We've, we've kept to the time we promised. But, Stuart, <laughs> we do have some more listener questions. Can you hang on for another five, 10 minutes, sir? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Good man. Well, that's, that's smashing. We have Paul Tibble on Twitter who asks, do you go out for all out for one four seven every frame? It comes across like you do. Loving the pod, thank you, Paul. What do you say, Stuart? You, you seem like you're you're sniffing maximums all the time. Yeah, it does seem that way. Um, it just comes sort of like buses. It's sort of uh, it, it, I don't sort of think of it any for maybe probably like a couple of months, and then if I get in in the groove of, of sort of getting chances, then yeah, I, I don't shy away. It's that first red. If I can get on that first red and get on the black, and there might be sort of four or five reds open, it's I'll, I'll do sort of go from it from the first red, even before the first red's potted sometimes. So, yeah, if I'm in that mood of doing it, then, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely go for it. And Patrick Buss on Twitter asks, I'm sure you have many, many, but who are your good friends on the tour? Maybe your best friends, let's ask. Um, Mark Davis is good friend. He... Um, we go and play golf together a lot in obviously in the summer. Uh, the wives are good friends, so uh, yeah, it, I'd say Mark's maybe probably sort of one of the best. Uh, Michael Holt, um, Nigel Bond, sort of we, we're similar age, me and Nigel, so we get on, we get on all right. 
Um, but yeah, it's sort of say, like as I said, just saying it was mainly we'll get on, we'll see, see each other at, at tournaments. So uh, yeah, all, all good. Another question. This is from Dave Black on Twitter, um, asking about the news that Judd Trump's off to play the U.S. Open pool. Mark Selby's playing some eight ball as well. Um, is that something you've ever done or would consider doing? A lot of players used to do it a lot more regularly, didn't they? Yeah, no, I, I remember people, how many people asked me about playing pool? Come, we have a game of pool. And I'm like, sorry, I don't. I remember doing a charity uh, for breast cancer at my local ASDA. Um, I'm maybe going back 15 years ago. I had to qualify for the world. So it was a bit of a time away. Um, but I remember playing for about three hours. Anyone that walked past who wanted a game, had, like, you had to pay, I don't know, a couple of quid to players say it all raised money for, for breast cancer. But um, I remember doing it for about three hours. And then when I started to practice snooker again, my game was totally gone. <laughs> and uh, it was about 10 days before the World Championships. And I, I think I'm, that year, I think I lost to Rory. And I said, I'll never play Paul ever again, like <laughs> when the snooker tournament were about. Uh, as nine ball, I've, I've played once or twice. Uh, obviously, pretty pretty easy uh, I think Judd will do well people sort of say there's a lot of luck um, involved but there is a lot of skill as well you see some of the top ball players that sort of jumping balls and, and spinning sort of, it's all it's a sort of positional play mm. the pockets are really generous and uh, it's a, it ain't like snooker where you need to get straight or just off straight you need like really good angles to get on the next ball so yeah, I think Judd. I think Judd would do pretty well. I think hopefully it'd be good for good for our game as well. Yeah. And Des Kehoe on Twitter asks, "How painful was the tattoo on your back?" Yeah, um, it was parts of it was really bad on, on the spine. That was. Uh, I remember uh, Paul Boxer, who obviously done the tattoos. I said, "Like, uh, what's the pain like?" And he said, "It's like someone putting a cigarette out on your on your sort of back, like the pain." <laughs> And uh, I sort of got got to that point yeah. at, sort of after a few hours. So uh, yeah, sort of obviously I've, now I've got a sleeve, a full sleeve now, of, like my kids all down there. So um, I, I was actually contemplating the other day. I got out of the shower and I sort of dried that arm, and then when I looked at that arm, I'm like, that looks really bare. <laughs> but uh, I'm like, no, I think I, I might stick to the sort of one arm. But uh, hopefully, I've got a few more trophies to put on my back somewhere. Well, exactly. You were sort of running out of space. If you win a few more, you're going to have to go down the other arm there. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, luckily, I've got a lot covered. Obviously, I've, where I've done the animals of where I've won tournaments. Uh, I've got sort of China covered. I've got, obviously, England with the three lions. Obviously, Australia and, obviously, Wales. And So, uh, yeah, I've got mainly a lot covered. So, I was trying to think. Maybe we've got Germany, Thailand, mm. India... Uh, it, it may probably it'd be nice to uh, put put another animal on me somewhere. Great. Um, this is one from me, actually, that you mentioned earlier, that you used to practice a lot with Ronnie. And it's interesting hearing people talk about those, those sort of practice sessions. Some people sort of sound that they're almost in awe of him, and I don't know how much they're getting out of it, really. But how did you find uh, practicing with him? Yeah, I remember sort of, I remember seeing him at the Ilford Snooker Centre back when, just before I turned pro. And uh, I remember him used to say, like, oh, do you, any anytime you fancy a game, give us a sort of buzz and obviously exchange numbers. And I remember sort of going up there when I first passed my test and 
Uh, and then obviously we've seen each other over the years and uh, he sort of goes through spells of obviously contacting. I think he practices with Barry Hawkins a little bit, uh, obviously himself, Martin Bald. So yeah, he still practices a lot and and he sort of, it's good maybe for him to play against someone as well. So yeah, he's, he's say at the end of the day, every now and then you're sort of thinking, I'm, I'm practicing here with Ronnie. It's like <laughs> it's still a bit of a sort of pinch me pinch myself sort of thing, but it's good, good practice. Yeah. And, and that good question from Phil reminds me of one, one for myself. Now, I've boldly claimed a few times now that I think you're maybe not the most, or, or but possibly getting that way, the most not to be overawed, if I can put it like that, by playing Judd Trump. You, you just seem to approach a match against Judd a bit like you're playing anybody. I know you just lost the last one, but you had your chances. But you're beating him in lots of big matches. Is that fair coming from me? You don't seem overawed by him at all. No, uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of yeah, pretty true that um, I suppose growing up and and sort of being amongst I suppose the likes of Davis Hendry, who had them like big aura about them, like in the game. Obviously, there's maybe probably only a couple in the game that still got that, and I'd say it's Ronnie and maybe probably John Higgins. But um, growing up, obviously, I think I'd turn pro as Judd was still in nappies. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's no, it's obviously you, you sort of grow up, you watch him play and, and and you sort of compete with him as well, even though Judd's been without a doubt the best player over at least the last two years, winning what, 11 tournaments. He's, uh, yeah, I, I still fancy sort of winning. It's sort of, I feel like if my game's there, obviously being great builder if if my game's on the on the day that yeah I, I say I, I feel like I can compete with anyone and uh, yeah the, obviously Judd has got that sort of a little bit of aura about him winning tournaments after tournaments but I, I, yeah I just see it as a maybe another player and and try and just take my chance when I get it oh. and Kelly Kelly Barker the friend of the podcast says uh, what are your goals for the season ahead good luck for the coming campaign, I'll be cheering you on as always. Yeah, yeah, Kelly's good friend. Uh, talk to her on Twitter and, and uh, Messenger and all that. But uh, yeah, just um, like every year, try and win a tournament. Um, I feel like playing, it's like playing a numbers game. You've got 25 tournaments. If you have one or two good weeks, hopefully you can uh, get your hands on a trophy. Um, Obviously, we're doing well at the last World Championships. It's pushed me back up the rankings on on a one year list. So I'm looking good for for definitely the uh, Masters for the 16, and then hopefully for the Worlds. Obviously, at the end of the year, I won't have to qualify again. But uh, yeah, hopefully, I can push myself higher up the ladder and and hopefully say get get to a later stage and and get my hands on a trophy. That's that's the goal more or less every year. Mm. You mentioned before that um, obviously you guys who started playing in the 90s, you caught the back end of the guys in the 80s, obviously grown up with the class of 92. Now you've got Judd and the younger guys now. Um, so you've played near enough all of the greats of the game. Have you got a sort of top three, top five best players ever that you would say? Um, <clears throat> yeah, good one. Uh, my hero was Steve Davis. So I'd have to put him up there. Obviously, growing up watching Stephen Andrew play, um, I always thought he was the best ever. But obviously, Ronnie sort of surpassing records after records. Um, 
I'd say Ronnie's definitely number one. Um, I'd say Hendry two, John Higgins three, Steve Davis four, and then Mo probably, I don't know. Stuart Bingham fifth? <laughs> no, I'd be about 15th, 16th, somewhere. <laughs> Not a bad place to be. Yeah, yeah, but no... Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Five, maybe probably Judd, Judd, or even Mark Selby. Uh, they're sort of maybe probably joint fifth. Um, sort of with the with the tournaments now, people sort of say that Davis or Hendry they didn't have all these tournaments. Um, but I remember looking back at an old sort of pop black magazine. They still had like 15 tournaments a year. Okay. Mm. So uh, people were sort of saying sort of. Judd's playing 25 tournaments. It's unfair to sort of the 100 breaks and, and stuff like that. Um, Ronnie obviously picks and chooses, so that's what makes it maybe even special. He's got to a lot of thousand centuries and, and the records he's beat. So, uh, but uh, like I'm sure in, in sort of five years' time, Judd will beat, beat him sort of Ronnie's records. So uh, it's, uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see for the future. Mm hmm. It's very fair, really, because we, we always talk about the sort of six, seven tournaments, but that was the low point. And actually, you know, even in, in the years, you know, after the sort of glory years, if you want, and maybe the 90s and beyond that, there were still quite a lot of tournaments, a good dozen, maybe more, 13, 14, 15, like you say. But obviously it went to the very low point. But, it, you know, there, there was still quite a lot of tournaments, as you rightly say, for those players uh, to win in the past. You mentioned Stephen Hendry. What do you make of his comeback, Stuart? Um, eats her own. I'm probably not a fan. Um, he, he, like, he's what he's done in the game, he deserves a wild card whenever he wants. Um, same as little Jimmy White and Mopery Ken Doherty. Um, but I don't know, he, he sort of the likes of Stephen, he's took nine years away from the game, even though he's played Mopery like a handful of seniors. He, he's lost. I'd say he's lost that edge, and only he, only sort of really Stephen himself can answer that um, how how well he thinks he can get back to. Um, he gave up the game because he didn't like losing, and uh, I'm not sure how long he's going to uh, sort of play for. But I can see him losing a, a fair bit the way he's playing at the moment. He sort of he might have a good match, but having that sort of time off, nine years off. He's going to have probably more bad days and good days now, I think. Well, as harsh as that may seem, but that's our sort of thing. Mm -hmm. As a student of the game and as a lover of the game, are you, are you struggling to watch him in, in these matches since he came back? I mean, he has struggled at times. Yeah, no, I watch him, but you, you can see him struggling with himself. He throws in a few, like, snatchy few actions and... And, and you can see why he sort of gave up the, um, he said he had a bit of sort of like a QI-itis. He couldn't sort of let go of the Q and things like that. And uh, you can still see it's it's there. Everything's very sort of deliberate. And I think when it gets to a crunch part, like a pressure sort of situation, you, you see it sort of appear. And uh, hopefully he can get out of it and say, hopefully he can, he can uh, get, get back to some sort of level and it'd be good for the game. Mm -hmm. He's obviously been working with your old coach, Steve Feeney. Um, are, you, are you working with Gary Filtner still? And how's that all going? Yeah, it's good. Um, people can't believe it. it's a bit like chalk and cheese. He, he don't shut up. 
uh, <laughs> where I'm a bit more quieter sort of thing. But uh, yeah, it's good. It's it sort of obviously being an old time player, he, he's got me sort of um, sort of compose myself and 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 sort of playing some good good safety, sort of putting not just safe putting people in trouble as well. So uh, yeah, it's been working good. He's he can still pot a ball as well. He's he's made a few hundred and forties against me. So um, yeah, he's, he's he's still enjoys it, and, and he's a massive fan of the game as well. Well, I think we're pretty much out of listener questions. One more here, Joe Baines on Twitter. Who came up with the design on your cue? Uh, good question, myself actually. Um, I remember when I first started working with Mick. Sharp, who uh, is a cue creator, um, he said like sort of he, he showed me a few cues to um, sort of to practice with, and uh, he, he said like what's, what's what what designs you want, and uh, I said well favorite colors blue, um, and sort of he, he sent a few options over, and I went yeah that's good, and how many times I get sticks saying yeah that's a snooker player plays with a pool cue. <laughs> because it obviously it, it was designed in America, so obviously that's where it's come from. So it is, is like a pool design, but it's something different. No one's got it on tour, and, and it's nice to be sort of having say something different. And uh, he's actually sent me a few other cues to try it now, a bit more uh, sort of more original cue with just a, a, a single splice in it, but. Um, I'm, I'm gonna go and get uh, the fell change. Might be today or tomorrow, so uh, to have a little practice with. But uh, yeah, it's it, it plays nice, it, and uh, obviously I've been doing all right with it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's brilliant. Um, Phil, I think we're personally uh, all out of questions, aren't we? Uh, unless you've got any more on your list there. No, that's superb. All my boxes ticked. <laughs> oh, that's great. Now, Stuart, what we tend to say is. Um, Obviously, thanks very much. But is there anything we, we haven't particularly covered that you'd like, you'd like to have talked about today? No, everything's good. Everything's good. <laughs> one, maybe one final one. Are, are you enjoying life as much as ever? Was, was that true for me at the top of the pod? Are you enjoying life on tour as much as you ever did? Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, I'm sort of... Uh, it's actually been nice to have a bit of time off to get the golf clubs back out and, and try and get my swing back. Before, say, before Barry and I got down to five handicap at golf, uh, I'm not quite there yet, but um, I'm probably playing to sort of a, a 12, 13 handicap at the moment. But uh, sort of, uh, I'm, I'm sort of enjoying the time off and uh, can't say literally can't wait to get back to playing already. Sounds like there's a really decent standard of golf on the snooker tour. Who who would be the best? Um, I think I think Sean Murphy. I think is the best. Of course, I, yeah. I, I know uh, Matt Selt's good. Uh, I think he's down to sort of two or something on the new handicap system. Obviously, he practices a lot with Stephen Hendry at Stephen's place. I know Mark Williams every day on Twitter or Instagram. He's a new call somewhere. So, uh, yeah, everyone's sort of, I think everyone is enjoying the time off and playing a lot of golf. Mm. You're you're not thinking of stopping anytime soon, are you, Stuart? You're going to go on for years and years to come, aren't you? Hopefully. Hopefully I've got maybe probably another five years or so in the 16 uh, and then we'll see where it goes but uh, yeah hopefully I can if my eyes stay good and, and get a little bit trimmer a little bit fitter uh, to sort of prolong the career yeah hopefully yeah till 50 55 
Good man. Well, we, we certainly look forward to that. And and, and we, we are, we did go over time. We are most grateful for your time this morning, sir. And we'll see you soon. You've been, you've been a delight to, to speak to and, uh, and sincere thanks to you. Thanks, Nick. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Joe. Thanks a lot. See you later. All the best, sir. Thanks a lot. Stuart Bingham there, former world, former Masters champion, joining us on Talking Snooker. And what a very enjoyable hour that was, Phil. Yeah, that was super. It flew by. Lots of interesting stuff there. Yeah, it was great to chat to Stuart. It really was. Now, we've got a test match final day to follow, haven't we? So we're wary of that, but we have got a little bit more snooker to talk about, haven't we, as well? And... First of all, let's say we've had a lot of reaction to our, our media special episode with, with Hector Nuns. Hector was great value. We knew he would be. We, we, I don't think we, we've had any episode we were more relaxed about. And I know I sort of joked about journalists talking about journalism, but we did go on, didn't we? Two hours, four minutes. Bloody hell. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even finish all the stuff I'd written down as well, so we generally could have done some more. But I think we... we uh... Uh, yeah, that was that was long enough for one, but maybe we'll do another one. It, it, it was. We, we we did really enjoy it. Though. Thanks again to Hector for joining us, and uh, I think we will have to do a part two, you know, sometime because a lot of people really really enjoy listening to us talking about this business, and and it was very good of you all to join us for that episode. And Phil, again, when you say, when you do two hours four minutes, and and then say we didn't get through some stuff, it sounds sort of ludicrous, but in a way we didn't. There were some Northern Ireland Open qualifying results and well nothing earth shattering but um Ali Carter had a a, a good win over Dylan Emery 4-1 uh, a result that uh, caught my eye uh, mainly because I've tipped Jackson Page to finally make the big breakthrough this season he beat Lei Payfan at 4-3 there was a, a good win for Ricky Walden beating Fraser Patrick 4-1 uh, Walden carrying on where he's left off in the early weeks of the season there uh, Oliver Lines beating Joe Perry 4-2. Martin Gould beating Ken Doherty 4-2. David Grace seeing off Jimmy White 4-0. There's a few I scribbled down there. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, it was fun to sort of look through the results. Nothing, as I say, you know, to, to, to make you fall off your chair there, Phil. But, uh, well, we keep saying it about Ali Carter. I mean, <laughs> the way he's looking, he's going to put some silverware in that cabinet of his this term, isn't he? Does look that way, yeah. He's certainly going to be competing for everything. He's got to be contender for anything he enters, really. Um, and as you say, nothing. I mean, there's the top sixteen aren't there, so with that in mind, you can't have any massive shocks. I suppose Joe Perry going out in the first round it is always a bit surprising, but Oliver Lyons has been playing really well recently, so he's going to uh, keep getting some scalps. Um, Gilbert carried on some good form, four 0 win for him, very impressive. Um, and yeah, it's just uh, ticking over, really, isn't it? Until until the the, the main stages begin. But uh, yeah, it's a shame we can't watch it properly. It's just been on the betting sites. I think Dave Hendon mentioned on Snooker Scene podcast that it'd be nice if in this gap they sort of made a bit more of a deal of watching these matches because I'm sure a lot of people would in in this sort of month off without much going on. Um, but yeah, we'll be following the scores nonetheless. We sure will, and. Uh, something else we were following the scores of uh, was the UK Women's Snooker Championship. And it's, once again, Rianne Evans, we have to say, magnificent effort from her. A 10th UK title, Phil, beating Rebecca Kenner 4-0 in the final. 
Rian dropped just two frames on her way to victory. And listen, she clearly remains the totally dominant figure in women's snooker, doesn't she? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's hard to tell because it's looking at frame scores, but um, it does seem that that final, it was 4-0, but um, Becca kind of did get a fair amount of points in each frame, so I don't think it was quite as one-sided as as the scoreline suggests. But yeah, um, those two came at the last 16 stage, they were top two seeds, and then Julie made it to the final. Although um, Kenna was pushed pretty hard by Emma Parker in the semis. Um, she had a good run. Um, but yeah, I guess, I mean, Rianne was the dominant force in the women's game anyway, and I imagine her competing on the main tour and the extra work that I imagine she's putting in doing that, uh, it'll probably only improve her chances on the women's tour. Um, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, but yeah, well done to her. Tenth UK title is very good. Yeah, 10 UK titles, 12 world titles, really uh, total dominance from Rianne. And uh, congratulations, of course, from us. We, we, we've also covered the Judd Trump uh, playing in the US Open Pool Championship in Atlantic City a bit there while we chatted to Stuart. We've had people asking us about it as well and our views. I mean, I'm all for it. Why not? I mean, you know, um, it's an easier game. I, I know Stuart suggested there's there's nuance to it. Of course there is. I'm a fan of Paul. Um, but we've had snooker players doing well in it in the past. They used to play it a bit more regularly, actually. Obviously, Mark Selby's a world champion at Paul. So, we know there can be crossover there. And while we're in a quiet period in snooker, I don't see why the number one player in the world shouldn't um, shouldn't play pool and go to America. It'll be interesting to see how he gets on. That will be on television, won't it, Phil? So we'll, we'll, we'll look forward to watching. Yeah, I mean, it's good crossover stuff. I mean, I, I don't watch much pool at all, but I'll certainly be watching Judd, see how he gets on. And then Mark's playing in the ultimate pool pairs. Um, so I'll watch that as well. Um, and hopefully it's crossover both ways. You know, Judd's spoken before about how uh, he'd, he'd love to sort of crack America for snooker. I know Barry has spoken about it in the past. Um, it, obviously, it would be it's a massive dream. I'm not sure how likely it is, but if there's any sort of way into it, um, give it a shot. Yeah, uh, and he'll be he'll be put in front of a whole new audience there. So um, certainly not going to be detrimental to anyone. It'd be interesting to see how he gets on. Although uh, Stuart there just said that it ruined his snooker game for a couple of weeks. So. Hopefully, just that won't happen to Judd or Mark. Yeah, definitely. Um, we had some ITV viewing figures from the British Open. ITV kindly contacted us actually to give us some uh, some some really good detail. Peak audience of six hundred and eleven thousand watching the final of that event. Mark Williams uh, winning his latest ranking event. An average of four hundred twenty-two thousand watching that match. Only the Premier League football and Love Island outperformed snooker on digital television that evening. And a peak of 350,000 for that Rian Evans Mark Allen match on the first night. I mean, it was August, people were still on holiday. They are good viewing figures, Phil. And I know, listen, we're going to be banging the drum of snook on this podcast. Of, co- of course, we are. But these are very healthy numbers. You can see why the TV companies so badly want to cover this sport. Yeah, I mean, numbers-wise, I sort of struggle to contextualise it sometimes. But that point you made about Premier League football and Love Island, I mean, that's the biggest sport in the world. And whatever you think of Love Island, it's the most popular TV show that's on at the minute or just finished. Um, so to, to be third behind those two um, sounds really good to me. Yeah, I mean, as I say, when you just see pure numbers, it's hard to work out what's good or bad. But in, in that uh, scenario, it's very impressive. Very much so. And of course, ITV uh, will be back 
I think the next one will be champion of the champions, won't it? In November, we look forward to the coverage of that. And uh, of course, we have Eurosport events before that. We're going to pop off, Phil, soon, but there is one matter we have to turn to before we do. Now, we have your views coming next week, folks, and we've had lots of correspondence in, quite a few actually in recent weeks. So we're really looking forward to answering your emails and your tweets next time. We're actually going to be probably recording it a couple of days later on Wednesday the 15th. I think you're off uh, down to the southwest, aren't you, Phil? So we're going we're gonna to postpone it for a couple of days. Have a great time. Yeah, that's my fault. So I, I, I apologise <laughs> for the late recording next week, but I'm down in Cornwall for a few days. Um, as long as it's still open. I mean, COVID cases are quite extreme down there, but I'll do my best to avoid it. Well, I wonder if anyone sees you down there, because that's my way of teeing up this email that comes into us from Graham Toll. Now, I couldn't wait a week for this. <laughs> he says, Dear Nick and Phil, big fan of the podcast. So much so that I recognised Mr. Phil Haig in the Stone Roses bar last Friday night. That beard is very distinctive, even under a baseball cap. Brackets, although without wishing to hurt Phil's feelings, no one else I was with was as impressed as I was. <laughs> I guess with all due respect, it was a pretty niche star spot, quote, unquote. Like Phil, I had also been at the cricket that day. Although day three was probably the worst pick I could have made, but still a great day out. It was so loud on the dance floor, I couldn't have really spoken to Phil, even if I'd chosen to. But I could also see he was with his mates, and so I decided to leave him to it. I was pretty well refreshed by midnight, so I don't think I would have made much sense in any case. And like Phil, I also live in the Reading area, so I was also worried about coming across like some kind of stalker. <laughs> but seeing Phil there and knowing his knowledge of most of the players, it got me wondering who out of them is also a big fan of indie or rock music. I know Mark Selby walks out to Kasabian for obvious local reasons, but not sure if I know of too many others. Be good to hear thoughts. Keep up the good work and all the best. Cheers, Graham. Well, let's leave the music aside for a minute. Come on. A star spot for you. Um, but um, I, I messaged Graham back and said, listen, if anyone on the very slim chance ever spotted me anywhere, I don't want any of that not bothering about disturbing me. You simply have to come up and say hello. Uh, I, I said it would make my day stroke month, stroke year. Could possibly be year, depending on what sort of year I'm having. Certainly month. But Phil, come on. That, that, you, must, you must be quietly pleased with that. Yeah, that's lovely. I mean, the word star probably is a bit too far, but uh, no, definitely, if, if anyone uh, in that situation, I mean, Graham says we, he wouldn't have made much sense. I think I was in a similar predicament to him at that stage of the night, so we could have made little sense to each other and that would have been fine. Yeah, Certainly, certainly come and say hello if you do see me. Thankfully, this big daft thing I've got on my face does make me quite uh, recognisable. Uh, it actually happened. It was weird we got that email and then a couple of days later, I was walking out of the train station in Reading and... Uh, Another fan of the pod came up and said hello. So uh, hello to Andrew as well, who uh, we had a chat in wandering through Reading Town Centre. So that was very nice. Uh, so, yeah, uh, we're certainly at the level of uh, quote marks fame where it's actually delightful for anyone to come and say hello. So please do. I can't believe I'm not more jealous for you. I find myself happy. I, 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 this is just, uh, you know, uh, this is quite quite something really. And didn't, didn't our friend Andrew say we would, 
we were appealing to the younger generation, which I thought for someone like me that normally has a pretty dated cultural landscape, normally nothing post Metal Mickey in my world. And yet, you know, here I am, apparently, probably associated with you, to be fair, Phil. It's probably more you, really. And we're appealing to, to you know, youngsters. Yeah, it's great to hear, yeah. I mean, uh, that's the idea of new mediums, isn't it, podcasts? So uh, I'm glad it's doing the trick. <laughs> you want to go off and watch the cricket, don't you? <laughs> well, I just said my dog's barking. I don't know if that means there's a cricket. <laughs> We've gone along over an hour, <laughs> uh, not up to anywhere near last week's marathon, but that, that that's about it then. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed your company, as always, of course, Phil. Ha- have a great Have a great week. Have a good time in Cornwall, and we'll be back on the 15th to address uh, the correspondence from the listeners. Brilliant, yeah, always a pleasure. Nice to speak to you. And uh, thanks very much to Stuart again. Yeah, he was absolutely uh, smashing, wasn't he? Stuart Bingham, our guest this week. Uh, Thank you very much uh, uh, to Stuart. Thank you very much to you for listening. Keep your thoughts coming to us. Email us, talkingsnooker at yahoo.com or tweet us at uh, talkingsnooker. Uh, But for now, from Phil and myself, Cheerio. Sports Social Podcast Network. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.